Nobody ever came to my house all these years ever to say, Lucy, you're getting poisoned. Nobody ever cared enough. Not even our council, our government, our representatives, none of them cared enough to come and tell us, hey, you guys are getting poisoned. We, we, we need to do something about this. I'm sitting at Lucy's kitchen table in Commerce City. Buenas dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches. My name is Lucy Molina. The morning sun streams through her kitchen window, illuminating the bright yellow wall behind her and her vibrant smile. I'm a mom. I do everything with the heart of a mother. Lucy's home sits next to a small park with a playground. Modest houses tucked close to one another. Down the street is an elementary school. And she lives within walking distance from Colorado's only oil refinery, Suncor. The Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment, also known as CDPHE, has named Suncor the largest single-source air polluter in the Denver metro area. I'm a frontline community organizer here in Commerce City, Colorado, and in Swansea, GES, and Aurora. I get to work with the most historically marginalized communities, which we identify now, I guess, by law, as disproportionately impacted communities, which is where I live. To put Commerce City into context, it has more young kids than the rest of the state. And almost 50% of the people who live here identify as Latino. Residents also have significantly lower incomes than Colorado's averages. In addition to Suncor, several other major industries and highways contribute to the current air quality problems. Also, there are historic sources of pollution, such as an arsenal and a former smelting plant. Like many people in Commerce City, Lucy buys jugs of water for cooking and drinking because of concerns over contamination. Just this past summer, Suncor released significant amounts of PFAS, or forever chemicals, into the nearby Sand Creek waterway at a level 10,000 times over the EPA health advisory limit. We have no drinking water. Our air is contaminated, our water is contaminated, our land is contaminated. That's why I called this like an environmental vomit, environmental chaos. After years of watching her family get sick, Lucy connected the dots. It triggered me because I sat at the state capitol listening to our state legislators, the scientists, doctors, experts. I was sitting there and they were speaking about how these toxins that are being emitted from this entity, they cause leukemia, cancer, asthma, heart disease, underdeveloped children. It's an impact for the most vulnerable, which is the children and our elderly. And I was like, wait a minute, boom, that's my grandma, boom, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's me, that's my mom. Lucy and her daughter suffer from debilitating migraines. Her son's nose has been cauterized twice in an attempt to get his bloody noses under control. Lucy's grandmother died in 2018 from leukemia. Her aunt has cancer. Illness has wreaked havoc on their lives. As a parent, like sometimes you're like, you know, you're lying, you just don't want to go to school. I mean, like, I didn't believe her, that her head hurt, that her tummy hurt. You know, I had to chase her in front of the school sometimes because she didn't want to go. My son would hide the bloody nose, the bloody papers from me. Like, I had to literally go into the toilet trash can and look through it to see the blood. And I'm 
My son's like, oh, mom, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to scare you. Now he was 10. They're little kids. They don't know. All I could think for me was like, you have to tell me. What if it's something worse? What if it's a damn tumor? Her kids are her priority. That's what brought her to Commerce City in the first place. Lucy moved into their home when her daughter was four and her son was seven. I was unhoused, right? I was living with family. It was very uncomfortable. So, you know, I saved my money and the first thing I, I was like, I'm gonna rent my house. And I, the first thing I saw was that park. I didn't even look at the, nothing around me. I didn't see the recycling in front of me there because it's across the park. I didn't even see that. I didn't see the trash company behind me. The important thing was the need. I needed a home. It didn't matter where it was, and this is all I could afford. And the park just, I was like, wow, this is perfect for my kids. There's a park behind the house, and then the schools are right there. I'm like, this is perfect. I don't care if I have to work two to three jobs, but I will never, we will never ever be homeless again. From historic redlining policies that segregated people of color into less desirable areas, to the current housing affordability crisis. Many people do not have choices about where they live. And, you know, once I found out and I was like, okay, we need to move, we need to get out of here, and it's too late. You know, it's like you build family, you build, you build community, like you get to know all your neighbors, the schools, you become one with your community. Why would I rip my family away from the only community they've known? People are like, well, if you don't like it, leave. Okay, first of all, as a single mother, raising two children in, in one of the poorest communities in the state of Colorado, uh, which is here in Commerce City, the south of Commerce City, it's not easy to just get up and go, right? It's not easy to just move to Lakewood or move to Boulder, you know? That would be nice, but I, it's not uh, a possibility for 99% of us here. My son was like, well, then we, we need to fight back, right? We need to, what can I do to limit the emissions? What can I do to start warning my community? Like, they need to know what's going on. Then I began to organize, right? I started knocking on doors. I started going door to door. She started telling her story to anyone who would listen. And she was determined to be heard. Lucy recalls a pivotal moment while canvassing her neighborhood when she realized people were starting to pay attention. One of my neighbors, like three blocks down the street, the lady opens the door and I hear her say, hey, hon, there's that girl that was on Nine News. He comes to the door and he goes, we've been waiting for you. And ooh, I got chills. I always say, aren't you worth it? I mean, aren't you worth it? And I think my neighbors finally are starting to realize their worth. I mean, if I want to buy my house here or I want to got a job here, then I want to know what, what am I breathing? Is it going to kill me? The, the invisible enemy is this air, right? It's an invisible enemy. You can't touch it. You cannot grab it and strangle it. <laughs> uh, it it's, it's, you cannot control this. This air is going to go everywhere. To say that the impacts of air pollution are complicated is an understatement. 
factors such as a history of discrimination or economic hardship that contribute to where you live, work, or play can add to the burden. And in many disproportionately impacted communities, it's often not just one concern. It can be a multitude of issues, from air and water pollution to food deserts or extreme heat. As you can imagine, the list can compound, making it feel overwhelming at times. We all have the right to clean air, no matter where we live. But safeguarding our air is about making hard decisions. It's about changing our thinking and our behaviors. And it's about looking at the issues from multiple angles. All of those realities can be true, even when they feel like they're in conflict. The Institute for Science and Policy was created to take on these complex issues and to have thoughtful dialogue where people can disagree. Yet at the end of the day, it's knowing that we are all striving for a better future. This series is hard, this episode in particular. But we hope each of you listens with an open heart, an open mind, and a desire to understand the complexity of this issue at the deepest level. There are no simple answers. These are hard conversations and hard problems. My name is Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, this is Clearing the Air, the hazy future of our skies, an eight-part series about the state of air in Colorado and how we are navigating this complex problem that knows no borders. Inside this rock is one of the mass spectrometers. This is the same type that we took to- I'm touring the Farmer Lab at Colorado State University. It's like many chemistry labs and filled with tubes, tanks of different gases, refrigerators, all kinds of scientific equipment, and tools scattered about, ready to fix something that breaks. What we do is, so we take all these signals that come as a function of time, very, very fast. And when I say fast, I mean on the, uh, just trying to think about exactly. This is Delphine Farmer, an assistant professor of atmospheric chemistry at CSU. Faster than microseconds, we'll just leave it at that. It's I'm learning about some of the field equipment that gets deployed to study our air. What makes air really hard to study, I think, is that it's hard to just intuitively know what is good, what is bad, and what might be good in one situation could be bad in another situation. So the challenge with thinking about the air that we breathe is that first you don't see it. Sometimes you can smell it, but you don't know what it's doing to you. Delphine uses the examples of cutting a lemon or cooking a chicken. What you're smelling are compounds being released into the air, but they aren't bad for you. Then there is something like the smell of gasoline. Those are compounds that can be bad for you. It's never just one chemical compound. You, you're never just breathing benzene. You're breathing 
benzene and then all of the other alkanes and hydrocarbons that also come along with it. And then that is getting mixed in to this general mixture. So we're also then breathing that ozone that's being formed. You're breathing the emissions from the tailpipes of cars. And you're, you're then mixing that together potentially with wildfire smoke. So the challenge in thinking about health effects is that it's not just a single compound. And it's not even just a set of compounds that don't change. These chemical compounds change minute to minute, hour to hour. And then across days and months, we get large-scale changes. So what you are breathing is an integral of time over what you've experienced over your entire lifespan. Our air is a massively complex stew of all kinds of ingredients. Ingredients that can negatively impact our health. Whether it's short-term exposure, like a wildfire event, or long-term exposure, like living next to an oil refinery. Trying to disentangle all of the compounds and their impacts is not easy. There are really two different ingredients to air quality, and they are the gases and the particles. And the gases, there are two things that I think are really important to understand. One is this base, and I think of it as sort of the organic soup of the atmosphere. There are all these different organic molecules, and those are the chemical compounds that you smell when you cut open a lemon and you get that really strong citrus scent. So we have this reactive soup. So that soup wouldn't do anything in the atmosphere if it weren't for the other gas phase ingredient, and that's oxidants. So ozone, radicals in the atmosphere, OH radicals, these oxidants are just compounds that react really quickly with those organics and just cause a whole cascade of reactions. And that cascade of reactions either removes things that are toxic, so that's really great if we have industrial emissions of dangerous compounds, then by reacting them away, we actually clean up the atmosphere. They can also create more toxic products. Of course, the problem with oxidants is that they don't really care what they eat. And so they'll eat away at these organic compounds in the atmosphere. And so they can be quite toxic, both to humans, also to plants and crops. Delphine says it's about finding a balance. We need enough oxidants to remove the toxic compounds in the air, but not too many that then cause other problems. The other piece in the atmosphere are particles. Little liquids or solids, they're smaller than, the, than your human hair. They're, they're small but mighty. So they, of course, can bring pollutants or toxins into your lungs. It's very clear from many different studies that the more exposure to particulate matter, the worse the health outcomes are for people. And there are direct correlations to life expectancy, cardiorespiratory disease, asthma, uh, all sorts of other effects. Sources of particulates are both natural, like volcanic eruptions or dust or pollen, and also human-produced, like construction site dust or from car and truck exhaust. But beyond the science, Delphine points to a more human challenge. People want there to be a single source of air pollution. So people want to 100% blame oil and gas development, or 100% blame wildfire smoke, or 100% 
plane vehicles. And unfortunately, the air doesn't work that way. All of those different emission sources all work together. They can enhance each other and make things worse. And so I think it's something that people need to understand that it's not just a single industry or a single solution. And instead, with air quality, we need to think about using multiple tools to reduce air pollutants, not just any single action. Air is like people. We're all messy and complicated. We're both the problem and the solution. My name is William Rene Bullock. I go by Rene. Anybody that calls me William, I know doesn't know me. Rene is the executive director of the local Chamber of Commerce and runs the Commerce City Historical Society with his wife, Deborah. Okay, first room, we're going to go up here and turn left right into the room right here. He is touring me around a small square brick building filled to the brim with photos, antiques, and memorabilia people have donated over the years. And this room, this tells all about Sand Creek. The Sand Creek is a tributary of the South Platte River. It's near and dear to me because I've watched the trail being established. Renee is talking about a 13-mile meandering trail that runs beside it and connects Commerce City to Denver and Aurora. And I hate to say this because everybody gets mad, but one of our major contributors to Sand Creek is Suncor. Renee's family goes back generations in the Denver area. He moved to Commerce City in 1983. He's been deeply involved in the community, serving 14 years on city council, including time as mayor pro tem. I was appointed to city council in 1998. It was 19,000 people in Commerce City on the day I was appointed. On the day I got off of city council in 2017, I think there was between 55 and 60,000 people in Commerce City. Most of the city's growth has been happening in the northern part. Commerce City is pretty much divided in half by the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge, a 15,000-acre urban sanctuary of roaming buffaloes and prairie dogs. The southern part of the city is where the majority of the industrial businesses are, and it's located right off of Interstate 70. Now, the northern half of the city is completely different. It has some industry, but it's a basically a bedroom community up there. And they benefit from the impact of everything that happens down here. Because between 68 and 78% of the income that runs Commerce City is generated on this half of the city. We have so many industries that People take for granted, but every day, if they weren't there, they would be losing their mind. When learning about the history of Commerce City, from the farming practices of days gone by to being a trucking hub today, our discussion was bound to turn to the oil refinery, which is often a lightning rod in conversations. When Suncor shut down in December after that fire and everything, and the price of gasoline went up. The only thing people could complain about was the fact that they were paying more for gasoline. Renee is aware of the air and water pollution issues with Suncor and the calls to permanently shut it down. Yet he also sees it from a different angle, 
If Suncor shuts down, won't we just get our gas from someplace else? And will it solve the bigger issue? I think before we start making these decisions, just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you haven't looked down the road for the unforeseen consequences of what's going to happen five, ten, maybe even one year down the road after you've made this decision. Don't come in here shutting down anything. Come in here with ideals how to make it better. You know, we can make the air quality in Denver better overnight. But how many people are going to quit driving? There is no question that Suncor has been controversial. And unfortunately, Suncor was unable to participate in this podcast. So we are relying on news reports, data, and statements made by the company. Suncor Refinery in Commerce City processes nearly 1 million barrels of oil a day, and it contributes $2.5 billion every year to Colorado's economy. The people living nearby have been saying for decades the refinery is hurting their health. The EPA is warning that Suncor Refinery has more air pollution incidents than most other refineries because of poor maintenance, testing, and inspection. The EPA rejected a permit from Suncor Energy for the second time today. The agency said instead it would let Colorado let regulators further limit pollution from the refinery in Commerce City. With three plants at two refineries spread over 229 acres, Canadian-owned Suncor Energy employs over 500 people locally. It refines oil into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and asphalt. 30% of all of the gasoline sold at Colorado pumps and nearly all the asphalt used to pave the roads in the state come from Suncor. It uses and licenses the Shell gasoline brand throughout Colorado and Wyoming, and it provides a third of the jet fuel used by airplanes flying in and out of the Denver International Airport. The plant operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's also a major economic contributor in Commerce City and the region. Colorado's only oil refinery is shutting down for months. That's good news for air quality and bad news for our gas prices. The company is classified by CDPHE as a major source of air pollution, meaning it needs a permit to operate. From hydrogen cyanide, benzene, or volatile organic compounds, the refinery emits close to 2,000 tons of harmful air emissions per year, in addition to a significant amount of greenhouse gases. The history of the neighborhood surrounding the refinery is long and storied, and reflective of industrial areas across the U.S. People move to where the jobs are. A refinery has been operating at that same site since 1931. Suncor took it over in 2003. We know air is bad, we know everything, but you came to Commerce City with a refinery sitting there. It wasn't hiding, it wasn't camouflaged. You saw it and everything. Work with the refinery. If we have to put fines on them for every time they have um, a, a mishap, and make sure those fines go to the communities where the mishap is going to impact them. That's what you do.
Denver throughout the 80s and 90s, for the large part, had a really problematic brown cloud. This is Adam Berg, vice president of government affairs for the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. So the chamber came to the table in the 90s to actually form the Regional Air Quality Council. And it was done for obviously some business reasons, a lot of negative public perception of Denver being a dirty city, but also because it was having negative repercussions on the health of people in the city and our ability to grow and our ability to continue to expand and bring people to Colorado and to live a healthy lifestyle. Adam makes the point that poor air quality not only affects our health and environment, but also our economy. They're connected. Before joining the chamber, he worked for Senator Dominic Moreno, a prominent politician from Commerce City who recently stepped down as Senate Majority Leader in the Colorado Legislature. And he also served the Adams County Commissioners for almost five years. In his role with the chamber, Adam has a hard job of representing more than 1,000 diverse business interests. Anywhere from your main street, mom and pop, art studio, all the way up to our largest employers who have more of a national and international presence. As well as helping these businesses understand how new policies and regulations will impact them. So we have seen no shortage of new regulation and new changes to the way we regulate air pollution in the state of Colorado. It feels like we, at times, are taking these big, broad approaches to addressing issues. A lot of monitoring, a lot of measuring, trying to understand enforcement, and frequently moving the ball on businesses, which has created, I think, more complexity in the system these last couple of years in particular. It is a constant game of catch-up. And I assure you next year we will see more policy aimed at this topic, all done, I think, with the right intent of cleaning up our air, cleaning up our water, holding accountable bad actors. The last five years have been historic in Colorado for the amount of new policies enacted around climate change and air quality issues. We really need to take a, take a pause to reevaluate all that we have on the table. How do we measure impact? Are we, are we missing the mark with this and solely increasing costs on consumers? As with any public policy, there are competing interests, values, and needs. Almost everything has some sort of trade-off. Who gets represented or heard? Do the policies address the issue? Who bears the cost? It often doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. We can solve our air pollution issues while supporting community members and finding the resources to do so. Adam also says that when we're talking about communities, to remember that it's a big, diverse mix of people. The businesses in your community are having a very hard time complying with the regulatory environment, and many of them want to. Business has become a bit of a bad word down at the Capitol and in a lot of communities. A lot of people, I think, generally think what's good for business is bad for the consumer. But I think businesses generally understand they want to comply. It's in their best interest to comply because they want to have a positive public image and public perception of who they are as a company. I think it's why we've seen a lot of industry proactively trending towards saying, we're releasing our own emission reduction plans. We're shutting down these plants. We're trying to move forward. In addition to businesses needing to adapt to the changing regulatory environment, they also, at times, get lumped together. 
you know, I think the main outliers we have to talk about oil and gas. I would argue that industry feels like they have been particularly under attack uh, in recent years. And the rhetoric on both sides, on the industry side, on the political side and the, the legislative side has been pretty aggressive and pretty finger pointing at each other about <laughs> who is to blame. So we've had some really hard conversations with oil and gas about staying in Denver and continuing to operate in Denver. There are a lot of actors, a lot of blame, a lot of finger pointing, including what happens with our neighboring states. There is a proposal heading to Congress from the Western states seeking the authority to create a multi-state agreement to address air quality. Even if Colorado does everything in the world to clean up our brown cloud, which we've tried to improve air quality to pass 65 bills in four years, and Utah does nothing, it's kind of all null and void. So having a bigger table and a larger conversation about what we can collectively do is where Adam thinks we can make headway. You know, I'm an eternal optimist. I think it's more of creating a pragmatic and implementable timeline that we can actually be realistic on what our goals are. Uh, We have created, for all sorts of reasons, a culture where we demand immediacy like, we've resolved this problem, it's done, or I want immediate access to information. And it creates that sort of loop where legislators feel they have to do something, whether or not it's realistic or practical. Balancing immediacy with effective, durable solutions seems like a daunting task. Even so, it requires so many people to be part of the discussion. And that means that people will not always agree. I will always be honest and I will be candid and I will try to share it in a way that shows empathy and human response to what can be really complex policy problems. Because I think we, we live in a world that lacks far too much empathy and forgets that a lot of these conversations, especially around policy, are real world impact to people who, who live in our community. It might be easy to segment our health from our economy, from our environment, but they are interrelated. In the same way, air pollution and climate change are interrelated. That means when we look at solutions or trade-offs for one part of the equation, we must look at the ripple effects on the other. For example, as Colorado undergoes an energy transition, there is a cost to replacing jobs and tax revenues that have historically supported infrastructure and schools. However, undergoing an energy transition also means we will have benefits for our climate and our air, our environment and our health. And while it's complicated, we should be careful about setting up the dichotomy that environmental regulation is in direct opposition to jobs and the economy there are costs and benefits to every decision we make. Yet often at the root of many of these debates are not questions of if we should do something, but of how fast and who bears the cost and the responsibility. Back at Lucy's house, her frustration with Suncor other nearby industries and government rings clear. What I call environmental injustice as well is that 
we end up accepting their $30,000 grants from that they give to our schools, to, to churches or to local nonprofits to keep us hush hush, to keep us uh, complacent. Here we have a city and a state that is supposed to be protecting the health and safety of our community. Well, you know what? I don't feel very protected. I don't feel safe because they're being allowed to emit these toxins with an expired permit for almost 11 years or over 10 years. Suncor donates millions of dollars every year to surrounding communities. But Lucy wants more than that. She is also looking for accountability. She wants to feel safe. Back in 2020, CDPHE and Suncor reached a multi-million dollar settlement based on more than 100 violations. Tonight, the state has sent a message announcing a record settlement between Suncor and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment for $9 million. The Suncor agreement includes around $4 million in penalties in new Suncor-funded environmental projects, $5 million for a new communication system to alert residents when something goes wrong, and the settlement also requires them to hire an outside investigator to figure out what's happened recently. Well, it did allow the first historic air monitoring program to begin here with one of the local organizations, which is Cultivando. And I really always have this respect for Cultivando because they listened to me. Because I went to my city council and they didn't listen to me. I went to leaders in the state and they didn't listen to me. And finally, this little Latino organization in the corner of Commerce City here, they took a risk on us. They took a risk on our future. Originally, I just wanted to know what was out there. What, what was causing those bloody noses? What was causing these headaches? All I wanted was that, like when there's a tornado warning or like a, a smoke detector that starts beeping, you know, that like, hey, something like that, something that would tell me, you know what, there's an extra amount of toxins out there. You should stay inside. Lucy and many other community leaders are starting to feel heard. Now that the people are starting to speak up and we want, uh, we want stronger regulation now, right? We want them to do their job. Because what I saw is that I was doing their job for them, right? I was letting the community know, you need to come to us and let us know who you are, what you're doing and what is your job. Uh, if they cause this problem, I wanna know what they're doing to fix it to help this community transition. I mean, these are the same entities that put us in this hole, are the same entities that should also, along with our governments, help us get out of it. I think, again, I always say, like, it costs money to save the planet. Sometimes at the heart of these debates, we forget about human dignity. We need to learn how to love one another, because unless you love one another and have that respect for each other, then why would you care what I'm breathing? I, I would really hope that community and humanity as a whole would begin to, um, gosh, look around you, you know what I mean? Look around you, look at us, look at us in Commerce City. We are living in a sacrifice zone. We have made it normal and we cannot. We've got to stop normalizing these things. In our next episode, we'll learn how policy is making change and how one significant case 
can have a domino effect around the world. Laws of Notion is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. To learn more, visit lawsofnotion.org. I'm your host, Kristen Uhlenbrock. This episode was written by me and Trisha Waddell, with production support from Nicole Delaney and fact-checking by Kate Long. Sound design by Seth Samuel, with tracks from Epidemic Sounds and audio support by Jesse Boynton. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. If you learned something new, please rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.